Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. As always, I'm here with Arthur Black. Hello, hello, kids. I'm Edward Assel, and today we have a very special guest with us uh, in the cutlery world. We have Eric Giesemann from Ashblades. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, no, this is just another really cool installment. Like, I, I think the coolest thing Ed and I have experienced when we started doing this show was to get to talk about all these topics that we find really interesting and not just alcohol, but other elements of the community. Um, and at least for me personally, a lot of topics that date back to antiquity just because I'm a history buff and a nerd. And we've talked about the role of spice and how far it goes back with Lior. Um, we've talked about slow cooked barbecue now. We covered that recently. Yeah. And then, you know, all the different beverages that yeah. we've covered that date back from either 300 to 3 millennium plus. And now we're talking about swords. No, this is super cool, and I want to speak to that as well, because the next episode we do will be one year. We're, we're one year into this, or very close to it, and the, I feel like we've learned a lot in this year. And this is a really cool way to kind of finish year one, is to learn about swords and battle axes and cutlery and knives and fucking danger. Yeah, <laughs> forging sharp, pointy things. Um, Quite literally. The, by now, everybody yeah. knows that I've got a special place in my heart for sharp shit so as do i <laughs> hey, right yeah, no it, it's it's fascinating i mean I, it, like you know talk about all the, t- the the thinking about all the topics that i mentioned a little bit earlier um you know this is something that pretty much goes back to some primal shit you know like yeah. man's necessity to weaponize himself even if it's with sticks and stones and sharp <clears throat> pointy things and it, it, it kind of makes me think of um uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, immortal classic 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. yeah. When the warring right. tribes yeah. of the monkeys are sitting there barking at each other and all of a sudden the monolith comes up and it's the genesis of, of, of you know ingenuity and creativity. And I'm going to pick up this bone and kick this guy's ass. Yeah. Um, so the, the, one, of the, uh, one of the things that I was most excited to learn was uh, Homo sapiens, at least, didn't create the knife. Uh, Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> evidence right. goes back to... About, I know, man. We watched the History Channel. Right, we talked right. about this. It's under the pyramids or Ancient whatever. aliens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some other hominid did, like 2.7, maybe almost 3 million years ago. Some other, you know, uh, two-legged bipedal ape figured out well, that we, a sharp rock could is, remove uh, a, a gazelle leg. And that's what we find in uh, piles of bones from like three million years ago. It, it, These sharp scratches from some other hominid that was not a human. Totally primitive. And then I do Very. think that this probably does predate our typical topic of alcoholic beverages. Because, I mean, face it, the first thing these Ooh, guys yeah, need to do... they weren't worried about alcohol before they were worried yeah. about cutting things. Yeah, the first thing a monkey needed to do was eat. And eat. the second thing was to fuck something. <laughs> and, and the third thing, following that logic, was if I'm going to fuck this monkey... I got to fight that fucking monkey. <laughs> yeah. And then they said... So I can do that again. Right. So I can do number one and two again. Precisely. And then they were thirsty. So on, on the fourth day... On they, the fourth they day, alcohol. they fermented. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking thereof, man, mm-hmm. hey, uh, what did you guys have to drink last night? Uh, I had uh, about two fingers of Colonel Taylor small batch when I got in from the shop. I always love it when a guest tells us how many fingers they had on the. Uh, yeah. I guess it doesn't matter the cut. The, yeah, it yeah, could be a. No, that's awesome. Could be a bucket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two fingers would be a lot. <laughs> you have small fingers or chubby fingers. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, I um I'm on the tail end of uh, my trip to Portugal, which is awesome. But 
the um, the week started off like beautifully where I was like academic Arthur and then about four or five days in I turned into Frank the Tank and like, shit, shit just went bad it went sideways so I'm I only had like a couple glasses of rosé, dry rosé last night. To, I only had. I only had a couple yeah. glasses of dry rosé. Yeah, right yeah. on. Which I have in front of me right now too. Yeah, yeah. I um. Well, anybody that's been following us on Instagram, and you absolutely should, because that's what we use the most. But uh, Arthur and I were all over the place last week, um, Portugal and Iron Maiden, and uh, so while well, I was in St. Louis to see Iron Maiden. Um, I picked up a couple of bottles where I actually had them shipped um, to St. Louis. We don't get anything booze-wise shipped to Indiana because of our laws. Uh, but I had a couple of the Golden Devil rums shipped over to a friend of mine in St. Louis, and I picked them up. And one of them was the uh, Worthy Park. Uh, I believe it's a nine-year-old or eight-year-old. I can't remember now, but of the a special bottling for KNL, and it was fucking awesome. Cast strength, single cask, 200 bottles made or 202, I believe, but. Um, that sounds awesome. delicious. Yeah, it was it. It's pretty cool. They sold out of it pretty fast uh, after somebody, you know, ranted about them not being able to move it um, online. You know, it was still available. I don't know. Somebody mentioned it and they sold out immediately. That after was that. that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad I got it when I did. So um, just before we get into sharp pointy shit. If I can do a shameless plug for Portugal, if you guys out there <laughs> for Portugal, for Portugal, have you heard of this? Have you, yeah. have you heard of this? Have you? Heard it's of this? part of the Iberian Peninsula. <laughs> um, if you've never had the wines from Portugal, of course they're known for their famous fortified wines of the Douro Port, uh, and then Madeira, the, the lovely island off the coast of, uh, of Portugal. But their dry wines, are, they're really stepping up, and they use all these wacky indigenous grape varieties like Encruzado and Torriga Nacional. And some of them have really fucked up names, like uh, Esgana Cow translates to Strangling Dog. Don't know about that one. And there's another grape that... Uh, uh, A.K.A. Chupacabra. <laughs> <laughs> there's another grape that translates to Fly Droppings, you know, and it's just like, all right, whatever. But they're wacky and sounding, but they are delicious to Yeah, taste. but how about a 125-year-old... Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. That was so cool. There was uh, <laughs> probably one of my wines of the year... And 125 year old port. It was 125. It was a cuvee, three vintages of the late 19th century. It was 1890, 1892, and 1900. Um, and it was it, it was just awesome. It was absolutely mind blowing. Is the That's oldest I've, I've had Madeira older than that, but I haven't had port that old. And then we also drank a 60 year old white port, which is always consumed like is a little aperitif with a little bit of soda and a twist um, it's not something you think about aging ever hmm. and um, it, it was gorgeous it, it drank like uh, dry old Madeira it's a very cool very cool trip very cool experience Wow! go check it out yeah well, let's get into <laughs> some uh, sharp let's do shit. it yeah so, so uh, what's your background man so my educational background is actually biological systems so uh, yeah biology molecular biology that kind of thing Nothing to do with knives. So how did you get into uh, knife making? I mean, uh, I I ran into you because uh, several of our chefs have your knives in our kitchen. Yeah, so... Well, it's had to help with your craft, though. I mean, just understanding chemistry and heat, the application of heat to forge mm -hmm. and, you know, bend and shape metal and shit. Yeah, there's a lot of science, especially in material science and metallurgy uh, that, that, that goes into modern knife making. There's, a, there's a, an extraordinary amount of science. Uh, science that goes into it and a lot of that science has already been done so we don't really have to redo much of it um, but um, 
but yeah, I mean, I was basically doing pharmaceutical research for about 10 years. Um, and it's familiar with pharmaceutical research. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the kind of stuff that uh, if if they want to get something on the market, somebody has to do it third party. And I was one of those people that did that third party. It was a, it's a great company, a great career. And, um, but I, I, as I started cooking more and more, I found uh, just that the, the knives I had, you know, they didn't hold a good edge. Uh, I struggled to get them sharp with kind of a drag-through sharpener, you know, the kind of standard things that you buy at a kitchen store or whatever. So is that like a trade term for making, like cooking? You said cooking. Is that like you cook a knife? Oh, no. Uh, I'm sorry. As I started just... As you were cooking at home yeah, and playing with knives. Yeah, okay, exactly. I didn't know if that was just like Yeah, a, no, sorry. I was kind of taking you back before no even that. It was really... Basically, I just I taught myself how to sharpen knives by hand on a whetstone because I could not get the factory sharpeners to put a good edge on my knives. So after a couple of years of sharpening every knife I could get my hands on, the idea kind of crept up in my head. Um, and at the same time, I was doing less biological science and more business uh, in the career that I was in. And so maybe I was getting a little bit restless. Um, and so I was just looking for something to do something with my hands. You know, I went from, from pipetting things to sure. just sending out emails and spreadsheets. And so this idea just kind of crept up in my head. Maybe I can make one of these things. When did you start Ashblades? Um, so I started knife making as a hobby maybe two and a half or three years ago. But Ashblades as kind of a business concept is not that old. It's maybe a year and a half or something okay. like that. Um, so it was just a fun thing to do at first. So you didn't totally have honest. some inspiring incident watching like the Dragon Slayer or something <laughs> or like, I got to do this. Arthur's projecting now. No, you know, it's not. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, man, I was, movie. I was like, I was like so many little boys that, you know, I, well, in my family, we hunted, we fished, we camped. My parents always cooked. Um, so a good knife was always something that you just had to, had to have around. So I, I, I think I just kind of grew up with that understanding. I inherited some great knives from my grandfathers. Um, and then additionally, yeah, man, I mean, I, will, I did martial arts. I still do martial arts. Um, so knives were just throughout my life a, an important part of the things that I did on a daily basis. Um, and it, I get, But it wasn't really until I was kind of in a position where I felt like I needed something to do, that that idea started bubbling up from all the knives that I'd used and had and owned and and uh, yeah. abused. Modern knife making is like a thing. I mean, there are more people doing it, it around the country, and I, yep. I've got some friends around the country that started doing it a few week, uh, few years ago, and love it. And it, I have always thought it's it's an awesome trade. You know, you're working with your hands, you're working with heat, you know, you're creating something. No, I love it. It's an ancient art that has been lo it got lost for quite a while. And yeah. now it's very cool that there are a handful of knife makers here in town and in any major city. Um, in, well, beyond major cities. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it probably ever disappeared in a lot of rural areas because it was out of necessity. Uh, yeah. The Amish make a mean fucking blade. <laughs> how, how many knives do you have at home, man? A lot. Yeah. How many ones that you use? I got one on me right now. Do you? Sure. Zombies. I'm counting it. I know. We've talked about your zombie. You never know, <laughs> man. What's going to happen? If he gets pulled over, he's going to fucking prison. Um, Switchblades are legal now, so I should be fine. But uh, you do... The knife I saw this morning from Carlos had a beautiful blade on it. Mm. Now, is that... 
what we call Damascus steel. Yeah, it is. And modern Damascus is kind of a misnomer. It's really pattern welded steel. The original Damascus mind, was Wootz steel, right, right? Which was a crucible steel, and it was kind of dendritic carbon shapes that ended up after quench and polish and stuff. It came out as what they called watered steel. Um, but that's kind of lost to history, right? I mean, they they don't know for sure if like. In the modern Damascus steel is actually what the Damascus steel of antiquity actually was because it just kind of faded off into a yeah. forgotten time. I guess it's kind of like the Romans in concrete, right? I mean, do we know exactly what it was? Probably not. Do we make concrete now, though? You know, it, so we kind of have an idea about who, how right. Wootz was made, right. and there are some modern metallurgists who make pretty incredible to know exactly what they did. It, yeah, it's impossible. kind of got lost. Is, I mean, yeah. for our listeners out there that don't know what Damascus steel is, you, you mind explaining Yeah, sure. It? So modern pattern welded steel is basically a process where you take layers of uh, what I guess you'd call straight carbon steel. So something that has iron, carbon, and very little other elements in it, sometimes manganese, um, to kind of help it etch darker. And then you're going to take something... Uh, that is non-reactive in an acid environment. So that's something with chrome uh, and or nickel as an alloying element in it. And so you, you layer, uh, say, one piece of straight, one piece of nickel, straight, nickel, straight, nickel, straight, nickel, or again, chromium, whichever one it is. Um, and sometimes you, it's just two different kinds of steel. Sometimes people put three to five different kinds of steel in there. It's all just each alloying uh, steel will etch a different way in an acidic environment. You heat all of that up, uh, and then you squish it, and it actually <laughs> welds all the different pieces of steel together. So when we talk about squishing, we're talking about, that's that's what you everyone's imagining it, like knife making. It's You're just hammering exactly, yeah. metal yeah. onto metal. Yeah, yeah. So doing that by hand with an anvil and a hammer is... Uh, is absolutely exhausting. Most modern makers use something like a hydraulic press or okay. a power hammer, something that can put 25 tons of pressure onto that little that little fused block of uh, of metal. So which that you makes use? the process much easier. Uh, so I'm actually uh, learning to make Damascus with um, Dewey White, who makes some of the most incredible. Uh, pattern and design Damascus down in uh, Mooresville, I think is where he is. And he has a hydraulic press, so that's what I've used to make it. Um, but uh, I'm probably going to do the dumb thing and try and do it by hand, yeah. by hammer and anvil here pretty yeah, soon. That's cool. Just, sounds like therapy to me. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's hours of grueling work, uh, but yeah, you know, it's... It's you fun. said you were into martial arts. Oh, yeah. That's your workout. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your right arm will be huge. Oh, uh, my left, actually. <laughs> oh, left. You're yeah. left-handed. All right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I mean, that's also something that would be exhausting, but also very time-sensitive, right? Because you, you got to get the right temperature. And Yeah, if you don't get the right temperature, then the steels won't weld together, and in the end, your billet will have these occlusions, these gaps, where it's basically just like fire scale, and that's not really usable. Um so it is very sensitive to time and pressure and temperature and those kinds of things. And so the process is to squish them and draw them all out, and then you can cut them or you can fold them, restack them, uh, however many times with however many layers you want in the end of the billet. Uh, and there are all kinds of clever cutouts and different shapes that you can that you can put in there. The one that Carlos has is put in when you 
you have a die with all these little pegs on it, and you basically smash that down into the steel, and then when you flatten the steel out, it has kind of like raindrop formation in it. Or you can you can actually drill you can drill holes in it, however you want to do it. But there's different ways that you can create again patterns or even designs in what is essentially just two contrasting pieces of steel. And then in the end, when everything is hardened and you know you have your knife shape, you ditch you you dip it in acid. You give it an acid bath. The acid etches away at the straight carbon, leaving black or gray lines, and then the the nickel or chromium is is left behind, is bright and shiny. What kind of acid? Wild patterns. Um, it kind of depends. You can do it with coffee. You can do it with hot vinegar. You can do it with hydrochloric acid. You do it with muriatic acid. Anything that's. Have you tried it with? Italian dry acidic whites? <laughs> no, let's do that though. That sounds nice. amazing. <laughs> so uh, this um, it's a shift drink collaboration. Every every episode, we're gonna come up with a new collab. Into something, like, man. <laughs> you, you could sell that line. You could be like, "This is Cabernet dipped, and this is Sangiovese dipped." <laughs> it might take a um, while. Shift drink merch, but uh, <laughs> right merchandise <laughs> need that. We'll be selling milk thistle on our merchandise page <laughs> for your poor livers out there. Yeah. Um, so this is something that. It doesn't just require an understanding of the basic elements, but also sort of the stamina, um, the, the physical ability to do it. And then there's, there's the aesthetic value, which is very important. I mean, these are beautiful things. So it, it must allow for some creative liberty and, and require an ability to like have vision and, and bring something to life that's also pleasing to look at outside of being capable of you know cutting things and killing people. Right. Yeah, so the the aesthetics I've kind of allowed to evolve just just as the tool has evolved over the last sort of three million years. I allow my own tools and my own aesthetics to evolve and you know, something that maybe a year ago I thought was a really good look. If I don't if I don't like it now, I let it change. Um, if there are new materials that I really like then, you know, I'll 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 go for them and kinda of see how they work. I I do have some I guess just some kind of baseline things that maybe I don't like um, and that I the avoid. The knife purists. You know, I try not to be. It's just, it's more just any, anytime something gets really, really, really complex, um, I, I find it sort of personally, visually difficult to look at. Mm. Um, and that's just a personal thing. If somebody ordered a custom knife and they wanted eight different kinds of things, six different kinds of wood in their handle, I'll do it. It won't stop me from doing it. I'll make it as beautiful as I can make it, but I wouldn't choose to make it on a knife that I'm just putting out there into the world necessarily. Yeah, Maybe it speaks I will to a lot. A of years. Uh, less of, is more. Yeah, you know? that's what I was going to say. It speaks to a lot of what we do in the, in the restaurant and beverage community. It's like, yeah, less is more. We don't need a 15-ingredient drink necessarily. Yeah, um, for it to be... Unless it's balanced and delicious and <laughs> unless it's tiki <laughs> in which case of course you do because seven of them are rums <laughs> this, this blade is rum dipped yes. no you so we're talking about the aesthetic and over the the evolution of the cutlery over the three million years but i mean that puts us back i'd like to talk because i know that you do beyond just cutlery for kitchens which is how i ran into you you know from our chefs that use your knives which by the way um uh esteban uh, I'm going to give you a shout out like this. I talked to him a couple days ago about the knife that he uses. He hasn't had to put that blade across a stone in nine months. That's it's excellent. still like holding an amazing sharp blade. That's good. Um, he's very, very happy about that. That's and good. I mean, ultimately, one of those things is actually geometry does most of your cutting. Um, the edge just leads the way. And if you have really good geometry and good steel, you can get away with what another knife 
you know, can't possibly cut with mm. as far as kind of, you know, uh, edge degradation because it's still super thin. Like I can cut most produce with my knives before I actually sharpen them because they're thin enough behind the edge. The geometry is good. So that leads me to um, the antiquity of these mm. blades. Um, yeah. You came to this also through a fascination through like yeah. ancient armor oh, and, and weaponry and, and yeah. you know that this I, Arthur's eyes you know get a little gleam in them when, when oh, we yeah. talk about ancient weapons and yes. battle axes and the such. Oh yeah, I mean you know that's again one of the cool things about this whole process is it's not just an evolution. The, the tool evolved through. Uh, through materials, you know, through time. So, you know, it was stone for as long as it had to be stone. And then some cultures never, never left the Stone Age as far as their tools go. And then others started picking up bronze because the, it could be cast and kept fairly sharp. I and thought then, you said blondes. I'm like, they started picking up blondes and they oh. forgot all that stuff. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Fuck these tools. Right. Once they got into Sweden, it was like, all right, this is it, boys. This is where we stake our claim. And thus yeah. the downfall of the Vikings. Then they met the blondes. Right. Everything right. was all downhill. <laughs> that was sad. <laughs> a sad chapter of history. <laughs> uh, yeah, so sorry. So bronze. <laughs> yeah, bronze. Uh, uh, but, you know, it was malleable. So, or basically once it was broken, you had to completely destroy it and recast it. Mm -hmm. uh, so then once people discovered iron and its ability with carbon, they didn't know carbon... Um, as a necessarily as a source immediately, but over time they probably figured out that mixing in carbon sources like straw and of course the charcoal that they used uh, allowed it to get harder than did any other materials that they had at the time. Um, and so now here we are today with you know with steels that are that have uh, really tight tolerances and we know exactly what chemical uh, components are in them and we can, we can we can really dial in our heat treat and dial in our our uh, geometry and but yeah I mean when I was a kid I when we ever went to a museum if there were swords and armor and yeah I stood yeah there that's forever, a fun room yeah forever <laughs> I would just stare at that stuff and wonder like I wonder how lightweight is that and how flexible is that some of them pretty fucking heavy really is that oh no doubt so oh you know, uh, big broadsword Jesus looking yeah. at history you know it, there's so many different styles and. It, you know, it's it's so rich going back thousands of years. It's hard to say what started where, but you know, stylistically, there were um, swords of like the Roman era, and, but there's also Chinese swords, mm. yep. um, Persian, yep. Japanese, um, and then you know, the Middle Ages with the two-handed swords. And is there one culture you can kind of point to and say that they made sort of the definitive knife? Or blade in terms of sharpness and weight and balance and everything else. What he's asking is how many museums have you broken the display and, and touched the like 800 year old knives? What I'm really asking is like, yeah. can you make where, one of where these for the samurai him? fit in? You know? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, considering that. We're the, the Persians. Fuck, so, man. so yeah. I mean, all these or weapons. Highlander, for that matter. Come on, Christopher Lambert, going to be one. Yeah, that that's it right there. The Highlander sword. That's the best. So, you know, I mean, consider that tools are a product of the culture that they're in, right? And so, if you do your battle mostly with people wearing leather armor, um, or or you know, soft cotton armor with some maybe studs or something woven into it, and everyone's on horse and camelback. Mm -hmm one type of sword is going to be the definitive sword for that kind of battle. And then somebody else has chain and plate. A katana is not going to cut through plate armor. Under no circumstance is that going to happen. In fact, there's a, 
there's a an, an old story about how there was uh, the and this I don't think this was Miyamoto, but it was um, you know it was a, it was a katana maker, it was a sword maker who was purported to be the best, and they wanted to put his sword up against the best armor maker. So it was a helmet. It was going to see if he could cleave through this helmet, and he readied himself for for that slice. And when he finally went to take it, the armor builder kind of yelled out about how the helmet wasn't right on the block or whatever, and so. He realized in shame that, you know, perhaps that disturbed the, you know, the sword maker's concentration. And so he gave up armor making to go be a sword maker. And, and it's just kind of weird thing about it's, it's an arms race. So what sword do you need to do the work that a sword needs to do? You're going to poke him, you're going to slice him. Right. So if you were, you know, if you were a hoplite, you had a sword for a reason. And then when the <laughs> Romans came along, they had a better sword. But that's because when you were a hoplite, you were mostly in a phalanx, right, or whatever. You were you mostly used a spear, so your sword could be a short slashing sword that just barely needed to get around your shield. Well, now you go up against a guy with a better shield and a better sword. Your sword's obsolete. So that's kind of through history. If you were if you were just going to say one thing that was going to slice anything, you could probably argue that katana was was the best sword. It's certainly it's in elegance. It's not something that can be compared to in many other cultures. But if your goal is to like slice a pig in half, there's a dozen or more do different kinds of implements that would do that. What's the range on the folding of the metal? Like mm. a thousand folds, two thousand yeah. folds? So consider that um, folding was mostly at the time, right? So now when we talk about modern Damascus, folding is to create a pattern. Mm -hmm. But back then you were folding in order to get impurities out of your, your steel. Right. So when they made that black uh, that kind of black sand iron tamagahane stuff there were all kinds of impurities and stuff in there and like if you made that today and you put it under a power hammer it would crack on the first blow almost regardless of how well you heated it because there's so many impurities in there what they had to do to homogenize the carbon content and get those impurities out was to stretch it and fold it and stretch it and fold it and stretch it and fold it but if you also look at the research there, then, then they started you know cladding it in other Elements. I mean, there's, there, there are, there, there's a really neat uh, uh, study about the the different cross sections through the different ages of, say, the katanas, where they, how many different types of steel they put in the construction of that katana and why they put the steel where they put it. So the, again, hmm. initially the folding was just a part of working impurities out of the blade and homogenizing the carbon content, so you didn't suddenly have a soft spot right at the hilt and the first time you hit somebody's shield like your sword just snaps right. off yeah. you know or whatever the you know a third of the way up it cracks and then that's it you're you're dead on your feet you got no sword so just so i'm clear are you saying that the samurai sword that i bought that i probably spent way too much money on that was marketed as being like 1500 folded carbon steel or some shit is not that big a deal. Really uh, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm, okay. In fact, and I'm, I won't be offended. So no. it wouldn't be the first time I bought something on no. it. <laughs> if it's if it's good steel, it's it's probably phenomenal. the The point is that if it's good steel, you may not really have to fold it many times at all. For oh, it to so still be yeah, good you're steel. talking about working out the. So the maybe your your sword needed 1,500 folds to get that out of there. That. Right, and and also there is something to say about the about doing that for artisan's sake. But if they're if they were started out with the you know, those impure black 
uh, Iron Sands or something, they had they would have to have folded it a bunch of times to work all those out. So, so it just depends so on where you, you're talking about the quality of steel, you know, and and his sword. So where does one source like steel ingot yeah. like all these things? Like where? Yeah. I mean. You know, I don't. I don't. I haven't stumbled across slabs of steel anywhere. Um, yeah. So did you say abs of steel or ab- labs of steel? Labs, labs of steel, uh, golden labs of steel. Yes, yes, those. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, most of what I get, I get online um, because it's really? small specialty factories that make this stuff. This is not typically structural. That those shipping costs suck. Yeah, that's what you get as much as you can get in one go. Absolutely. I mean, I can, if depending on what I'm making, if I was going to make a parang or something, I could just go to a junkyard and get a, a leaf spring from like a truck in this from the 60s or something. And it's probably something like 5160 that I know I can heat treat. And there's different things you can do to send that off bandsaw blades. You can get those. Um, I've got one in my garage right now. Um, there's all kinds of things that, that, you know, you can find old sources of of steel that can be reused um, but it does take some research to know whether those are w- what kind of steel you have on your hands and uh, that's kind of the premise of that reality show that forge and fire mm, yeah. right where they get a task to yeah tear apart a car or something right. and give them an old shovel or like a ball bearing and they have to bang a knife out yeah yeah exactly because it, it's been done forever i mean humans have taken Right, you know, reusing, recycling, and banged it into a sword when they had to have a sword. See, I haven't seen this show. I know that uh, you didn't really want to necessarily discuss it, but I, oh, I, I yeah. don't know what it is. I haven't seen this. What is it? What so, are we talking about? Yeah, I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to give the impression that I didn't want to talk about it. It's just uh, so. <laughs> he's most just pissed because he's not on the show. No, totally. Come on, not. guys, let's get Eric there. on here. Come on. No, I don't belong on there. I can't forge anything nearly that fast. I'd embarrass myself. I take. <laughs> forever to forge something out and I'm constantly rechecking it and you know thinking about it and so I I couldn't I couldn't forge under that kind of that kind of time constraint but I mean and the guys that do that are amazing man I know some of these guys they are amazing it's more just most people that I meet have never seen a handmade knife they they don't even know that people do it but by god they know about forged in fire and that's the first thing oh so do you go on when are you going to be on forged in fire it's like okay well I'm not but at least we have a thing. That so it's we can a reality about. show about making cutlery blades. I mean, it doesn't nice. have to be cutlery. It can be any kind of, you know. Right on. Any kind of blade. It just it just depends on what the what the challenge is, I guess. But, okay. Um, but it, but it, yeah, they, they, what they, channel uh, is this on? They, they, what, they, what, I don't know, A and E or we or history. One of those I th- history. I think it's yeah. okay. history. Okay. Yeah. But, I've seen a couple of episodes like two years ago or something. Uh, oh, it's been on in a, a while then. Hospital at like three in the morning. Yeah. So yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't have cable, so I can't, I can't watch it either, but I, I, I know some knife makers have been on it, and these are phenomenal blacksmiths and bladesmiths. I've seen um, a few episodes, and it's, it's entertaining, and I, I hate those shows. I hate that whole genre the of, whole reality thing. of television. It just, you know, ugh, it just makes me want to fucking puke. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's actually drawn me into a couple episodes, and they're like judges and elimination rounds and shit. And yeah, I never watched those kind of shows for the bullshit drama that's manufactured but i watch yeah. them for whatever the if if i watch one it's for the art of it and something like that but i've not, I've not seen what, what's it called forged in fire forged in yeah. fire i have to look this up when i get home yeah check it out i mean at least it gives you an idea i would say that i better- would say most of us have not seen a blade being made like my, i would think that most of our listeners uh, and most people would you know when we talk about uh, making a knife. I mean, we're all imagining that blacksmith anvil hammer that you just talked about 
in the beginning just like just banging that shit out and not like any sort of hydraulic press or anything like that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I just haven't no, been exposed to modern color. It's, it's cool and entertaining, but I would probably just as soon watch Law and Order Marathon. <laughs> you know, I don't want to watch enough. that either. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, actually, the part of the interesting thing is um, knife making. You, you don't even have to hammer forge, really. I mean, if you have a, right. uh, a steel of appropriate dimensions and known chemistry, you can. I mean, the first the first knife I made, I made with a hacksaw and files, and uh, I made a forge out of a paint can. Um, I didn't have an anvil. I mean, I had a claw hammer, but that wasn't going to work. Or maybe it would. I didn't know, but <laughs> it didn't seem like the handle was up for that that kind of a task. So you know, stock removal basically. Um, and I make most of my knives that way. Um, I cut them out of a piece of steel that's that's the right shape. So who do you sell most your knives to? Like yeah, local chefs? I was gonna ask. Actually, local home cooks more than local chefs. I only have a handful in the local chef community. Uh, most of it is are people who are you know that's who building, have the same though. like that's building. Like, oh, yeah. I, I, your name's definitely being floated out there a lot more because, like you said, Ashblades is very young. Yes. And I, I, whereas a year ago, nobody knew you know who you were in the community. Now, yeah. I, you can't go anywhere no, where nobody knows your name. Well, that's, that is good to hear. I, I, well, I don't know how far my name has gotten <laughs> in, in this city. I only know how many people order knives from me. I don't know if sure. they talk about me or not. I just know, yeah. And the important so part's mostly, the ordering. <laughs> Everybody out there, the important part is the ordering. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if I mean, it's like anything. If you want to support a business, right? Right. Buy, Great work. Buy what they make buy doesn't they always make. go recognized, but I mean, all you can hope to do, in the words of the Dalai Lama, is do good work and don't be a dick, and everything will work out just <laughs> yeah. fine. Did the Dalai Lama say that? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we were. It might be lost in translation. Not we, totally we, we sure. We were talking about swords. No doubt. You and the Dalai Lama were oh, talking yeah. about <laughs> swords. Yeah. And he said. Do good work. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Precisely. That was well, his thought. I mean, that's, but that's the challenge for everyone, right? Is like, number one, it's to get your name out there. Number two, it's, it's quality. How do you prove right. that, you're, that what you make is worth their money? And so most of my customers are people who have, you know, had a big box chain blister pack, couple of knives that have plastic handles that don't hold an edge, and they're looking to get rid of them, right? And that's the kind of part of the other issue is the consumer culture that – most of what people see is cheap and it's cheap for a reason they figure you're just going to throw it away eventually you're going to buy a new one um which i think is kind of garbage i don't think you know i have knives that are like probably 60 or 80 years yeah. old there's absolutely no reason to throw them away yeah that's interesting that you say that because because i think that the home cook and home consumer has largely ignored cutlery um for the most part for decades i mean i know growing up and not even growing up, even in the last 10 years, you know, it, I, I have friends all the time to go over to my house and, like, see all my mismatched, mitch, eh, mismatched knives, you know, um, all hanging there and whatever. Like, oh, no, you know, I got this great set of knives and with a block and everything. I'm like, yeah, uh, what did you get? And, like, right. they're, like, 70 bucks and they got, like, 19 knives. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you, you don't want to be a dick and say, yeah, they're probably shit, man. But... <laughs> But, you know, I think people are coming around and, I mean, I always recommend to everybody, like, you know, spend the big money on two or three knives, you know, because yeah. they will stick with you for a very long time. You'll probably be able to give them to your kids. But, yeah, uh, I mean, for an average home cook out there, I mean, what, what, what's the first knife you would recommend they, they, they go ahead and grab before they start I mean, not to get all going brandy, down the rabbit but hole? Is there a 
yeah commercially available knife that you think does a really good job with their work oh like a fact like a factory knife yeah. I think. yeah i think um what a lot of what's coming out of japan is really high quality i would mm-hmm. say factory wise prepare to spend at least a hundred dollars up to maybe two or three hundred dollars on a good on a good chef knife coming out of a you know coming out of J- japan but if i mean yeah. if you're looking at you know that amazon thirty dollar deal or whatever right, right. it's <laughs> it's okay i mean so right, the whatever they the may Victorinox last you a year, eight year Fibrox or whatever that one is that that America's Test Kitchen always says is the best knife for the deal. Probably is the best knife for the money, you know, for, for forty dollars if you only want to spend forty dollars on a knife or whatever, fifty bucks, um, you know. But really, I mean, it comes down to materials and geometry, and you could spend a lot of money on a crappy knife. Uh, oh, absolutely. I went to a famous knife shop in Japan that was real small and. I can't remember the brand, but they were insanely expensive. And the guys who I were there were, were chefs, and they were like, yeah, like, this is yeah, this is the shit. This is top of the line. Yeah, top-notch yeah. stuff. Some of the stuff I've run across that's, uh, you know, handmade in Japan, it's crazy because it doesn't even have any mark on it except literally, like, a mark. Like, whoever the yeah. maker was. Name of the family, just, yeah. Just put his family name there, and boom, and that's it, and nothing else on that knife. But yeah. But everybody goes crazy for it. Yeah, I mean um, they, that you know they're they are a, a strong blade culture, and so they have whole city you know like Seiji City is, um, is 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 a knife making city, and there are lots and lots and lots of families who have been doing this for generations. I want to go there. Me too. <laughs> oh, you haven't been? No, no. Uh, plane tickets to Japan are pretty expensive. Yes, they are. And, uh, yeah, they're not know. cheap. Got right. little kids. They're not cheap either. So, you know, little kids, playing tickets to Japan. I'll, I'll, well, my wife and I will get out there one day. Yeah. So. There's another trip for us, Ed. Well, Go you visit know, some Kuru. Oh, dude. Bring me along, fellas. You're killing me, Holmes. Like, my wife has been complaining about the fact that I haven't made any effort to take her to Japan in the last 12 years or whatnot. It was even mentioned this morning. But, you know, this year we're... That was on the agenda for this year, but we derailed that with uh, Patrick Aledo. Right, Amsterdam and France. Yeah, so we did mention in our last episode, not to derail you here, Eric, but we mentioned in our last episode, or I I guess Patrick mentioned, he he threw out an invitation. He said, hey, why don't you guys come to the uh, wine fair in Alsace at the end of July? And uh, two hours after that episode was up, uh, Arthur texted me and said, hey, man, we can uh, can go... (laughs) from uh, Chicago to Amsterdam for 500 bucks and then figure it out from there and uh, within a day and a half we had our airfare booked you're now spending more than 500 bucks (laughs) yeah we're we're spending way more so now it's turning into a trip to Amsterdam to Alsace to Paris and that's uh, it's going to be an epic trip so actually our next episode will be uh, broadcasting from Amsterdam. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, if we remember any of it, I don't know. I'm like, we're doing the Amsterdam, Alsace, Paris triangle, so it could be like the ween, <laughs> ween, weed, wine, and cocktails triangle. <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, you get high, then you drink wine, then you go drink cocktails, then you come home. You don't remember any of it. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, good luck, guys. It's, yeah, I'm like, just rubbing my hands. All right, come on. Checking into rehab when we get back. <laughs> Jesus. But we do have some incredible guests lined up, you know, way better than this Eric guy. Yeah, um, that guy. <laughs> When's he going away? Yeah, where do we need to get knives in Europe, you know? Yeah, right. uh, well, uh, Toledo has always been a great knife city. They make really good knives. Um, I mean, Sheffield, England, for a long time, I think 
stainless steel was invented in Sheffield. Really? Maybe I could be wrong, but yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so there, there's still maybe just one or two knife houses there. Um, you know, Germany has, I don't know where Wolfstoff and Hinkles are, but they have them. Um, I know there's somewhere, you know, over in Germany. Um, Zollinger, maybe? Something like that? Um, I think for less expensive factory knives, actually, you went to Portugal, a lot of Portuguese factories are making more and more. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, fairly inexpensive um, factory knives. Okay. I guess I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, great food country and no shortage of historical relevance. Relevance. <laughs> relevance. Relevance. So you did bring some knives with you. Yeah, which I did. Kind of yeah. prompts. Can we kind of take a look at them and talk I, about them? And absolutely. then, what? Uh, what is your website? Where can people find your work? Yeah. So, um, so I guess to kind of answer your your original question, which is maybe represented by what I have here, is usually the first thing you buy is a chef knife. So whether that be kind of a Western style chef knife with a lot of curve in the blade and kind of a Q-tip, or a more um, a more maybe Japanese-style chef knife like a Gyuto or a Santoku that usually has a little bit of a flatter blade profile. Um, you know, that's kind of up to personal taste, but that's the knife that you're going to do 90% of your work with. Um, so that's usually the one that you want to spend your money on first. Oh, these are beautiful. Um, and then, you know, kind of the second one is a pairing knife because that's the one that you can't... Uh, well, I mean, if you can hold a chef knife and... You know, do pairing work. That is pretty amazing. There are a few people who can do that, but usually that's all the work that's off the board. Right? I mean, super important for bars. You know, we're always looking for something that fits in our hand, that, that's versatile, and it's going to keep it sharp blade. Yeah, no uh, doubt. Oh, I love the handle on that. Yeah, that's uh, Hawaiian Curly Koa. So these are all one piece of metal all the way through. That one happens to be a full tang. I was like, going to say there's a, a I would say full tang is the term for that, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. This is a. a so if the for those of you out there listening that can't see me holding this knife, obviously that would include all of you. Um, <laughs> so this is one piece of metal uh, that goes all the way through the handle, uh, and you've got wood on the sides here. It's mm -hmm. uh, riveted and. I don't know what you got holding here, everything together. Those are, uh, they're, they're pins, actually. So okay. it's all, uh, the pins m mostly provide support from kind of torsional stresses. Okay. But it has a, like a multi-ton flexible epoxy that holds the whole thing together. So anybody that's got a knife at home, you know, you can pull these out and you got usually got like three, they're maybe two. Rivets, yeah. yeah. So, all right. Yeah, but that's easy for factories because all of their handle material, every single piece is the same, right? Uh, and it usually comes out of like a, it's, probably hot pressed in some kind of stamp and then that you just rivet on those pieces but um, all of my handle materials are not the same because my knives are custom um, and and also the rivets aren't necessary especially for a kitchen knife you just don't need that that kind of mechanical hold you can put it on there but you don't have to have it um, if you've got a pretty good epoxy then that that take cares takes care of it for you oh, it has a great feel to it and uh, you know it's, it's something I've always believed in like you don't necessarily need to, um, oh, how should I put this, um, without undermining the, the ultimate amount of craft. Like, you know, I'm not a sushi chef, but I can tell what a good piece of sushi is. Sure. You know, I'm not an right. art student historically. Right. Like, um, you know, I had a minor in, like, art history for the most part. But, you know, I'm not a painter, but I can still kind of look at something and go, that took talent, or that's kind of a piece of shit. Right. Um, sure. Absolutely. And like with these knives, without knowing that much about knife making, I mean, you can feel just the the quality into them. You can feel that that someone 
made these and someone made them with um, with a degree of care. Right? Objects and food just kind of have an energy that way you can just kind of pick up on. They do. It's interesting. I, I never have a lot of knives, but whenever go, I go to farmer's market, I notice there's always a couple that everyone picks up and it's almost always the same couple. Um, I, I mean, I think all of my knives are... are are, are, are approachable in that way but there's always something that I've gotten just right about you know one or two that like everyone picks those one or two up yeah. it's like this just feels so good in my hand well and again like you said these are th- a good blade you can pass down yeah. generation to generation I'm always fascinated with the like what I always refer to as the secret lives of cookware like I mean I have I have uh, you know pots pans and cutlery in my kitchen at one of my restaurants that you know has seen me through some weird days in college you're like <laughs> i was like i can look at a pot and like oh man i remember being hammered and just literally drinking fucking liquid out of that pot because we had no other drinking vessel or yeah. that was the one that we made boston and just poured salt in because we didn't have <laughs> so, like anything but right. salt and water and Right. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like knives can definitely carry that as long as you're getting a good quality blade and yeah. taking care of it. Yeah. What do you think of like uh, what are the ceramic knives? Yeah. Um, I think um, I think <laughs> I think they're they're a clever use of of material. They every, <laughs> you're so diplomatic. That, that way was more than very we politically are. correct. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I response. Mean, the thing is, if you're gonna cut a cucumber, there's nothing wrong with a ceramic knife. But there are some things that it's not going to do well. So every For night... all you pussies cutting cucumbers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ceramic's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, look, every Trying knife, to cut some ribs with yeah, this. Sure, exactly. Every knife is a compromise. Every knife is a, is a compromise. You're, you're compromising one thing or another, whether you're... I mean, if, if you use a super hard tool steel to make a knife, you're, you're going to hold that edge forever, but good luck sharpening it. Like, right. you're, you're going to have to have some serious abrasives to sharpen that knife. Ceramics push that out to the max, where they hold their li- their edge life, at least for slicing, forever. But as soon as you hit something hard enough and you get a chip in it, there's no easy way to grind that out. I had a buddy growing up who had a ceramic pair of nunchucks. <laughs> what? I'm not, I know. I'm not making this shit up. Like one, why would you do that? Because the whole point of nunchucks is to yeah. hit, hit someone with them. Yeah. And um, that's a one. That's a kind of a one-use. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, they, yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. They, they are. They were disposable nunchucks. Right. That guy was a dick. He, <laughs> he broke my nunchucks, but he deserved it. Um, they were obviously decorative, but of course, my buddy got drunk one night, was flipping them around, dropped them, and just smashed yeah. just a thousand pieces. Well, that, that is that, exactly one of the compromises that you get with ceramic knives. Again, it'll cut, I mean, it'll cut whatever, you know. In the but world of so ceramic is not a good use of materials. No, not at all. And, and you were talking about, you know, like you can get that super hard-ass blade, but, you know, good luck sharpening it. But, I mean, so the people that are buying your knives, like what kind of home care? I mean, I think most people don't take care of their knives at home. And that's why even with a really high-quality knife, a lot of people will buy them. And, you know, four or five years later, they realize, you know, they're off kilter. They're you know they haven't yeah. been, they haven't been honed correctly. Yeah. And you know so how does someone take care once they buy one of these nice blades for one hundred and twenty dollars, one hundred and forty dollars? Like how do they take care of that at home? So uh, care is really pretty simple. Uh, the, number one is use the knife for the thing it's intended. Don't 
don't pry open cans. Don't, you know. Don't cut nunchucks. Don't cut nunchucks. <laughs> like, no matter what the the Ginsu guy used to do, <laughs> right. if it's not food on a cutting board, don't cut it with your kitchen knife. Use your pocket knife if you need to, like, do something silly. Or use a can opener to open a can. So that's kind of the basic thing is, you know, don't use it on on glass cutting boards. I don't know why those were even invented, but uh, don't do that. Terrible don't invention. Use stainless steel cutting boards and then, you know, wash them by hand, dry them, put a drop of oil on them, learn how to hone them. I try to teach everyone who buys one of my knives, at least who sees me in person, how to hone their knife and then bring it back to me and I'll sharpen it for free forever. Now, when we're talking about honing, I think a lot of people confuse honing a blade with sharpening a blade. Yeah. Um, because they're used to seeing that honing tool and like, oh, that's my knife sharpener. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. You see the Swedish chef or whatever on television and like, <laughs> Swedish <laughs> chef. <laughs> well, that's that's the, the first thing that came to mind. You know, like, yeah. the sword is okie dokie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just slapping at it wildly. But that's like the long, long yeah. what a, what a long, yeah. I guess, it's a, it's a metal steel, cylinder. Yeah, yeah. 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 the metal. Yeah, just I like steel. ceramic, but most people have yeah. a steel. Yeah, I've got a steel. That's what, what usually is but available. That tool what what is that tool's intended purpose so what that tool it it kind of realigns your edge so every knife this is kind of where we're talking about material science every knife once it's heat treated has a limit that is its elastic deformation and its plastic deformation limit right and those are the two things that determine how much of a load it can bear how much pressure it can put on something with whatever that is pushing back and it doesn't deform or it only elastically deforms and returns to shape. So eventually every blade will meet that kind of plastic deformation and that edge will wobble a little bit. It'll either turn over or, you know, I mean, you should never get to the point where your edge is actually rounded and you can kind of see, if you're looking at the light, you can see a gleam of, yeah. If your whole edge is rounded, then you've blown past that. But on the average use, your edge will kind of move, shift a little bit. And that steel helps kind of just realign that edge. It just moves it back in the other, in the center line direction. And you really only need a few strokes on a hone, like four, maybe six each side um, before use. You do not need to wildly slap right, at it like yeah. 50 times. If you're doing that... Makes good either, for uh, television. It does. Either maybe you don't know what you're doing or maybe your knife needs to actually be sharpened. So steel needs to be removed from that edge the edge needs to be re-apexed and then re-refined and then you know then you've got a fresh edge but if it takes that many swings you know to to hone your blade then you're probably ready for sharpening and definitely would encourage everybody out there to like learn how to properly sharpen your knives Uh, there are definitely people out there that will do it um here in town there's a handful of places that'll do it for you but yeah, I um, sharpen knives all the time. But, I mean, it's something you can learn, oh, yeah. you know, pretty easily if, as long as you pay attention. And yeah, I've done, I mean, I've done some classes. Um, I'm working with a couple of restaurants. I did one at what was Pizzaology, now Stella, with Neil Brown. And then I'm in talks with a couple of other restaurants to, to, to do sharpening classes. Because, um, I mean, even a cheap knife can get a great edge if it has good geometry. It's just whether it's going to hold that edge for very long. Right. So that's all determined by what kind of steel it is used uh and some 
restaurants, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that restaurants have gotten used to is you buy cheap knives that people mm-hmm. just destroy. And <laughs> uh, we buy them cheap because people fucking destroy sure. them. That's the reason. Sure. Damn good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, ultimately, though, they're not their knives, right? I mean, yeah. If they had to bring their own knives, well, they do. I mean, the ones that care do. Sure. And the sure, ones sure. that don't, that's when we're like, ah, this one's your knife you can use yeah. today. There you go. If you touch any other ones, you're fired. Yeah. But, you know, but those don't hold an edge for all that long. Right. Ultimately, they don't. No, they won't. Um, And so you're better off learning how to just take care of it. Sure. How to sharpen it. Most of our guys come to work with their own knife roll. um, And our bartenders are, you know, coming with their kit. And they oftentimes got, you know, knives like yours uh, in in their bag now with a pairing knife or whatnot. for those out there that want to check out some of your work, or yeah. do you sell online? I don't have an online store, um, but I mean, do you I, take commissions online? Yeah, yeah, I most of my orders come via email. Okay. So if you go to uh, my website www.ashblades, so a s h b l a e d s dot com, uh, there's a contact me thing, and it'll you know if you're just looking to place a custom order or just inquiring about any inventory that I may have on hand, just shoot me an email and we'll kind of lay the whole thing out. But do you have ceramic nunchucks? I don't. I have not made those yet. <laughs> I don't have a custom order, so I probably won't. <laughs> well, the thing about ceramic You don't is, have a custom order? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Just actually, wait another hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. That guy said ceramic nunchucks. I'm going to get some. (laughs) (laughs) It it takes a lot of heat, actually, uh, uh, to form something out of ceramics. Like, and, and the ceramics are pretty, pretty weird (laughs) material. Highly breakable. Highly breakable. My sharpening stones are ceramic, or at least some of them are. Well, uh, before we wrap up today, um, we always ask, um, a couple of questions here, but first off, um, you already mentioned your website. Yep. Uh, do you have social media accounts I do. that people can like check out some of your work? Yeah, uh, Instagram. So again, Ashblades, A S H B L A E D S. Facebook. I have Twitter. Almost no one. Yeah. It's kind of a weird place for what I think. What it's a weird place for anybody but the president. Yeah. He does real well on it. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, does. I mean, real if you're not like a comedian or someone just complaining about politics, you don't probably get a lot of traction on on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I, so I have it. If that's all you have, I have it. But otherwise, Instagram is knife, where I do the most. don't, sad. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, They're the best. Yeah. But uh, Instagram is probably where I post most of it. But I do, you know, I do put things up on Facebook occasionally. And I try to always have a couple inventory knives on hand that somebody can pick up if they just don't want to wait six or eight months to get their custom order. Um, so, know, again, his something. website is Ashblades, A S H B. L A E D E S. No, B L A E D S. Sam. No E in there. I already screwed it up. Yeah. Well, all, right. all that misdirected traffic, whoever owns that domain name, yeah. you're welcome. You're welcome. Enjoy <laughs> we the ex- knife orders. We expect a uh, sponsorship on the next uh, episode. Um, you know, well, shit. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm looking at my vermouth like, I, I could use another glass. Here. Yeah, I think I could have another glass of dry rose. Um, What's your favorite hangover cure? I don't get hangovers. What? Come on, man. No. Huh? It's. I guess it runs in my family. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> right. I. I. I it's the first me, one of those we got. Well, yeah, it is the first time we've had that yeah, answer. And I know. I think we need some it, of your fucking DNA. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess it's I like know, a it, superhero it, DNA that like can. I mean, know. like in my 
in college, I didn't at all. It didn't matter. What. Really? No, never. In my, like, now, if I don't chug a lot of water, like, I'll wake up feeling a little like, eh. But then I just, I don't know, take a Tylenol or something, I'm good by breakfast, but... Want to come well, to Amsterdam with us? Because we can challenge that. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, in uh, I mean, yes, but no. You're what, like 35? Yeah. I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, for your sake, I hope at 40 you don't go through some kind of... Uh, yeah. Physical Me- change. Metabolic shift. Right. Where oh, man, that first one's going to destroy you. Yeah. Probably. See, we're, we're, we're old hat. It's like, oh, I've been doing this since I was 13. Another day in the life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, and frankly, you know, I'm, I, I work usually late into the, into, to the nights. I work six or seven days a week, and I do have little kids. I don't get hammered very often. Sure. You know, getting up at 6 a.m. to, you know, get breakfast or go to work, and then sometimes, you know, 12-hour days in the shop. I'm just... The I shop, a.k.a. your garage? Yeah. yeah. It's like 120 degrees in the summer if I'm running the forge. Yeah, just, I saw the pictures of your forge and stuff. And yeah. you're like, oh, just man. Just getting pounded the night before and doing that is not something no. that I'm going to. Probably sweat it out pretty quick, though. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. That, that's his hangover cure. That's why he doesn't get them. There you he's go. going immediately into the shop where it's 120 <laughs> degrees. So there we are, folks. Yeah. Go forge knives. Yeah. <laughs> that, just don't get that, hangovers. Yeah, or just don't get one. That's, I would say go pound... Steak, yeah. or steak knives. Go pound... Um, yeah, steak knives. I'm thinking of my lunch. It's the only kind that he makes. I had a yeah. steak burger. Um, go a pound knives. Yeah. Steak and shake? Actually, yeah. <laughs> did you? You had steak and shake? I did. It was the first time I've had it in a while. Oh, man. We're going to make everybody jealous. It's outside the Midwest. <laughs> I mean, steak and shake does does the job. If you they can do. Get it in your area. Yeah. Like, we don't have In-N-Out Burger, but we've got some steak and shake. It's which not a was bad like hangover a, cure. I, if, if, I believe I'm correct in saying this was the inspiration behind Shake Shack. Uh, because Danny Meyer grew up in St. Louis and missed that steak and shake really? burger in St. Louis and started his little burger shack there. And uh, now I it's had an no empire. idea. It's an empire boom. now. Yeah, boom. Well, for those of you that want to find us online, uh, we're shiftdrinkpodcast.com. Um, we, all of our episodes are there. You can stream them. We are Shift Drink Podcast on Instagram as well, and it's Facebook. And then on Twitter, we're shift underscore drink. But. We definitely, um, our two most used, uh, I guess, platforms would be uh, Instagram, and you can track Arthur and I wherever the hell we might be, and very soon we're going to be in Europe for the Shift Drink European Tour, and uh, on Facebook, uh, we repost a lot of articles irrelevant to the things that we've talked about in the past, or that we are talking about this week, or just some cool shit in general, Um, and please rate us on iTunes, man, it helps. all across the board and visit uh, Eric at ashblades.com. Yeah, check out these guys' work. You got yes, yes. to see some some pictures of these. And, um, you know, he's part of the local community, so you got to support him. So this was awesome, Eric. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, no, this is yeah, great. Really. Very thank informative, you so very much. cool. And, uh, like I said, you know, our my chef and sous chef over at Rook, they, they love your stuff, and I'm looking forward to grabbing a few blades myself. So appreciate that. Uh, until Amsterdam, Arthur. Oh. <laughs> Whatever, man. No, I'm excited, man. I'm just. I know you're jet lagged right now, but yeah, you should have just stayed in Europe. <laughs> yeah, because two weeks in Amsterdam and France just wasn't enough. Might as well just made it four plus weeks. Just made a month. All right. Well, until we're in Europe. Cheers, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs>